Welcome back to The Andrew Curtis Show. Now, if you've been listening over uh, the last few months, you'll know that um, one of my main passions is looking at ways that we can best help people grow and develop and, and have the lives that they really want. Um, but out of that learning, I started to make a bit of a discovery. When you're asking questions about how do you really help somebody, um, I became aware that there were a few assumptions that I had about the world. And one of those things that I knew for absolute certainty uh, was that the world was going to hell in a handbasket. Everybody knew it. Crime is out of control. Poverty is everywhere. Disease is ravaging the world. So you can imagine how shocked I was when I started to discover that maybe that just wasn't true. And it wasn't just in a, in a limited area. It was across human experience. There's literally never been a better time to be alive than there is right now. And uh, in my study and my um, efforts to learn more about this, I became aware of a website called humanprogress.org. And from humanprogress.org, Marian Tupi joins me now. Good morning, Marian. Greetings. Greetings. And uh, hello to New Zealand. <laughs> Um, Marian, it's, it's incredible. I, I'm almost overwhelmed with where to start here because, as I say, the, the sense of certainty that is um, not only shared by a common man, but I think also communicated in the media about how the world is going these days um, seems so at odds from really the progress that's been made. So maybe there's a few areas that uh, we could start by drawing some attention to um, that I think would, uh, would encourage people to know about the progress that is being made. Um, sure. Um, um, I, uh, like yourself, I um, didn't realize just how much uh, good stuff was happening around the world until I came across a book by a British journalist and scientist, uh, Matt Ridley, called The Rational Optimist. And the book was filled with interesting information, lots of um, uh, lots of uh, uh, data sets, uh, statistics showing that the world is getting better. And I thought, you know, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. It should be online. So Human Progress was really created as an aggregate website for as many uh, statistics about human well-being as possible. And uh, I encourage people to go to humanprogress.org to check out those statistics for themselves. Um, now, where does one start? I mean, let's start with the most basic uh, statistics, and that is to say uh, life expectancy. Life expectancy is an important statistic because it is a, uh, it is a proxy measure of things like nutrition and health. It is a proxy measure for maternal health, for infant mortality, um, medical advances, and so forth. Now, for for most of human history, and our species is about 300,000 years old, life expectancy was anywhere between 25 and 30 years. Um, today, it is 72 years globally. It is 80 years in the West and close to 90 years in Japan. Mm. In New Zealand alone, uh, between 1960 and 2015, so uh, over the last 55 years, um, life expectancy increased by 14%, 14%, and in Australia by 16%. So that gives you a sense of how rapid this progress is. 
But you could also look at uh, things like uh, income per capita. And what you find, best statistic on this was compiled by a uh, by an American professor working in Holland called Angus Madison, sorry, British professor working in Holland called Angus Madison. And, um, you know, our stats, reasonable stats go back to about the beginning of, uh, of the first millennium, which is to say around the time of Christ, around the time of Caesar Augustus, the Roman mm. Empire. Mm. And what you see is that incomes remain pretty much the same all the way to about 12, 1300. Then there's a little blip upwards. But um, essentially, uh, incomes for ordinary person uh, haven't changed since the Roman times until about the end of the 18th century. So that's 1800 years of stagnation. Mm. And then suddenly you have this hockey stick effect whereby incomes take off and uh, globally over the last 200 years, incomes have risen 12 fold adjusted for inflation, which is to say that an average inhabitant of this world is 12 times better off adjusted for inflation in real terms than he or she were in uh, in uh, in eight at the beginning of the of the 19th century, mm. and again to to bring it home, um, to look at New Zealand and Australia, uh, between 1950, which is to say right after the Second World War, and 2017, incomes in Australia rose by 150 percent, um, and in in uh, sorry in New Zealand in Australia by 260 uh, percent, uh, but still it's a it's a massive improvement. Yeah. You know, and as you're talking about those time periods as well, as I, I'm even aware too that I think we have a very romanticized view of what the world was like, uh, you know, not too long ago, as you mentioned, uh, you know, even coming into the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, you know, people look at period dramas and things like that on TV and think, wow, wasn't the world amazing and quaint back in 1800 and something? Uh, and then to realize that I think the status something upwards of 90% of the world was living in um, absolute poverty. Uh, around that time. Is that is that correct? That's correct. So throughout human history, people were extremely poor. Uh, mm. Absolute poverty, obviously, is not something that you would expect to find anywhere in New Zealand, Australia, or the United States. Here, when we talk about poverty, we talk about relative poverty. Yeah. But absolute poverty means living on, you know, $1.92 per person per day. Mm. And indeed, uh, you would expect that uh, in 1800s, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century, um, uh, most of humanity, uh, well over 90 percent, uh, would have been uh, would have been uh, living in absolute poverty. The the issue that you talk about, the romanticization of the past, uh, has to do with the romantics. It has to do with the backlash of certain writers, poets, and artists, and scholars against industrial revolution. Mm. You can talk about, I'm, here I'm thinking about James Blake and his famous uh, uh, poem, Jerusalem. I'm thinking about the works of Charles Dickens. Yeah. And um, 
basically as industrialization started changing society in a very profound way, not just the landscape, but also social reactions, uh, interactions between people, there was an upswell of opposition to change. And it mm. came from romantics uh, uh, who, who started venerating nature uh, and who created an image of a bucolic paradise that <laughs> preceded that preceded industrialization. Mm. But but people have to keep in mind a few things. First of all, most of humanity was involved in agriculture. Yeah. And agriculture is an incredibly difficult, um, uh, difficult yeah, labor um, intensive and yeah, yeah, demanding but thing to yeah, very labor intensive, especially uh, when you think about time before machines. Sure. So anything that was done on the farm had to be done either by people or by their animals. Mm. Um, if you want to see what agriculture was like, you can go to some very poor African countries like Burundi or Rwanda and see how uh, agriculture would have looked in Europe 200 years ago. Another thing which is very important is that people had no idea about germ theory of disease. They had mm, no sure. idea about uh, diseases. Uh, one reason why so many of the paintings from the uh, pre-romantic period, uh, from 17th century and 18th century, depict milkmaids is because their faces were the only faces which were not scarred by... Uh, by smallpox. measles, oh, right. uh, by smallpox, precisely, yeah. because yeah. people who handled milk were exposed to a uh, uh, to a less vicious uh, variety of the virus that causes uh, smallpox. Mm. Uh, they they usually tended to uh, not to be scarred by by this uh, particular disease. Uh, which used to kill hundreds of millions of people every year. Um, so, so really, it was quite a horrific period of time, uh, not to mention, of course, that there was absolutely no social mobility. Yeah. If you were born a peasant, you died a peasant, and your generations of your posterity died as peasants. Um, and, of course, people were not free. So that's another reason why we shouldn't romanticize the past. Yeah, well, look, I'd love to explore that thought in a little moment as well, too. I mean, I think probably the most brutal, um, maybe brutal is the wrong word to use, but uh, kind of summary of it is that really for the, the better part of human history, um, not so much being a, a bucolic paradise, nature's really just been trying to kill us. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, that's absolutely right. People had no no notion about germs. Uh, yeah. There were no microscopes. Uh, yeah. There was no antibiotics. Um, my favorite example of this is in the 1920s, uh, America had a president called Calvin Coolidge. Mm -hmm. And he was in many ways a very great man. And uh, he had a son who was playing tennis at the White House um, barefooted. Mm -hmm. And he got a blister which got infected. And he died a few weeks wow. later, uh, in spite of having access to the best medical care in the world. But this was a few years before antibiotics were discovered. So no, nothing could save you. And this is just an example to bring home the, 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 that, that fact. Mm. And look, one of the things I, too, I think, too, that, that comes through in this, this study as we look into it as well, because you mentioned the Industrial Revolution, and I think it's fair to probably address, um, even if I was to play devil's advocate for a moment there anyway, 
uh, that I think there's a huge body of misunderstanding about the power that really economics has had underneath all of this, that um, more than any other, if I was to say, social force, um, this ability for wealth to be generated uh, by anybody uh, and increasingly open, I mean, you mentioned class mobility, uh, has been a function of, of economics uh, and economic production. Indeed, uh, Marx uh, himself uh, talks in his work about the extraordinary of power of capitalism mm. to generate wealth and uh, undermine the political structures of the feudal society. So Marx was under no illusion to him. Capitalism was a massive improvement on feudalism. Uh, he just thought he could do one better, and mm. he couldn't. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, and that's that's been the theory, hasn't it? That um, you know, can consistently when when that's been put forward as you know socialism or, or uh, you know communism as a means of improving uh, well-being. In fact, there's there is a, a wonderful um, article that I point people to find on um, on human progress that looks at the relative growth of uh, of the economies of the Soviet Union and the USA over you know the same time period, and you do discover that. As much as there may be, um, I think, greater income equality, the overall growth of of of, uh, of wealth and well-being for those people um, was very much left, uh, you know, by a great factor of magnitude behind what would say more a capitalistic society. Sure, I mean today the South Korean. Uh, remember this in the nineteen in the early nineteen seventies, uh, GDP per capita in South and North Korea were roughly equal. Right. Today, South Korean economy is 40 times larger in per capita terms mm. than uh, North Korea. And obviously, by the 1970s and the 1980s, it was clear to everyone that the Soviet Union was not really a competitor of the United States or of the West in general in terms of uh, generating growth. Mm. The point that you are making about income equality is um, is interesting. When people talk about socialist countries being more egalitarian, it's very important to understand that behind the Iron Curtain, there were two classes of citizens. Mm. Uh, there were the Communist Party apparatchiks who had access to better hospitals, better schools, who could travel internationally, better food. Um, and then there were the plebs, Right. Who didn't yeah. enjoy and uh, they didn't enjoy any of the uh, any of the uh, benefits. So it was a uh, stratified society, mm. uh, just like you still can find in places like Cuba, for example, or in Venezuela. Yet another example of a socialist economy which imploded, and there you have a two-tier system as well. Uh, the Chavistas uh, and the Castroites, uh, the people in power, they enjoy very different standard of living from the rest. So, uh, you know, measuring income inequality is not, uh, is, is one should be very careful about, about asserting that socialist economies were more equal. That's a good point. That's a good, yeah, I, I suppose a better way to have said that would have been that for, um, I guess, air quotes, again, the common man, uh, you know, you have your, you know, your lawyers paid the same as your uh, street sweepers or whatever. Um, yeah, that's correct. That's that, that's correct. The, the the income difference differentials there were not very high. There were some, but not mm. very high. Mm. Uh, but basically, everybody was by Western standards poor. Yeah, yeah. 
And I mean, again, that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? That that even to be poor in a you know I, I guess a Western capitalist society uh, was to be wealthier than um, you know the, the the wealthiest of that you know the, as you say the plebs um, in what was supposed to have been and was often sold to people as this uh, paradise for workers. So why don't we explore maybe a little bit more of that if you wouldn't mind because there's still I mean obviously Marxism still has a uh, quite a place in our uh, civic discourse at the moment. There are still those who advocate it. So um, I'd love to get your perspective on that too. Why is there still the sense that, um, you know, even now within the US, we have people saying, well, you know, capitalism's evil. We want to get rid of that. We want to be socialists or whatever it is, take all the money off the wealthy. So why why do you believe it is that this idea still has legs to it and gets promoted as a solution when the evidence would suggest that, in fact, if anything, the reverse um, occurs whenever that kind of a system is put in place? Well, that's a very important question. Um, people have been asking that question for a long time. I mean, from the founding fathers of the United States all the way to Milton Friedman, everybody used to, who was a Nobel Prize in economist, everybody um, recognized that every generation needs to be taught the benefits of freedom, that we are always only one generation away from losing it. Now, why would that be the case? Considering that socialism has failed every single time it was tried, considering that today we are witnessing collapse of socialist economies, such as Venezuela. Venezuela is a perfect example. It is happening yeah. in real time. Mm. Um, why do people believe that? And clearly, uh, at least in my view, clearly, there has to be something in human nature which demands that we tear down the people who become disproportionately wealthier and more powerful than the mean of the population. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some psychological research suggests that may be true. I would recommend that your listeners um, look at the research by Jane, uh, John Tooby and Leda Cosmides. Uh, they are psychologists from University uh, of California in uh, Santa Barbara. And what they are looking at is uh, basically the structure of the human brain. And they've come up with this concept of environment of um, uh, of uh, environmental, uh, environmental adaptiveness, which is to say that modernity is a very unusual situation for a human being. Our brains have developed tens of thousands of years that we spent in the bush when mm. we were hunter-gatherers. Sure. In hunter-gathering societies, uh, were much more egalitarian uh, in terms of wealth possession, partly because you had to, well, by definition, hunter-gatherers were nomadic people. You sure. couldn't carry uh, a lot of stuff with you. And they lived in small bands where they shared uh, some of the food they, uh, they, uh, they slaughtered. Um, it's quite possible that our brains have evolved to, um, to, to deal with the challenges uh, of our hunter-gathering ancestors. Mm. And that 
in a situation like that, when you are living in a band of, say, 100 or 150 people for many hundreds of generations um, uh, and where wealth accumulation was impossible. I mean, after all, how would you accumulate wealth since <laughs> sure. everything you ate uh, would rot? Right. No. Uh, mm. You had to consume what you caught. Uh, that that really, um, uh, you know, wealth differences didn't have time to emerge. Mm. Now they have emerged, but our brains are not used to that kind of situation. Our, uh, as as the researchers put it, our Stone Age, uh, sorry, our modern skulls house Stone Age minds. Right. If you see. Mean. Yeah, sure. Well, look, I think I think there's very much some some truth to that. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd love to run a thought past you that I had, and I'm, I'm more than open to uh, your critiquing of it. If uh, let me know what you think. But one of the ideas I was when I was turning this over um, in the lead up to talking to you today, I was thinking that you know you mentioned as well this idea of freedom being so fundamental to um, you know the more prosperous societies that we have. And I think that there's a there's a trade-off with freedom that comes with, uh, and that is responsibility. Uh, and that says within a, say, a capitalistic system, um, there is scope for, and this is particularly in a, you know, a, a, in a free society, there is scope for those who are prepared to, um, you know, to excel and take responsibility for themselves can do well. Um, but equally the challenge, and this is something, you know, you learn from very young, you know, three, four years old, is that, well, if something's not your fault, then you can't be held responsible for it. Um, and the easiest way to say that it's not my fault was that, well, somebody else did it. And I've, I've often wondered, even in terms of the, the simple appeal of that sort of thing, is to say, well, the reason I'm not wealthy or doing well um, is not because of anything under my power. It's because of other forces, uh, you know, faceless, nameless forces, or, you know, somebody who has ripped me off to get to where they are today. And so I demand, a, you know, a reallocation of resources or something like that. Um, would you think that, would that play into that at all? Or is there any study that you're aware of around those ideas? Well, um, the, the, there are two or three things to unpack there. Cool. Uh, one, one is, as you rightly point out, freedom comes with responsibility. Um, liberalism, libertarianism, or classical liberalism, um, in my view, should wed responsibility and freedom. Mm. Uh, freedom without responsibility is libertinism, which is a completely different concept. Okay. So um, in a liberal society, one is allowed to, for example, engage in uh, drug use or promiscuous sex or um, dangerous sports because in a liberal society, um, you are free to do as you please so long as you don't harm anybody else. But also, if you harm yourself, such as through drug use, uh, you shouldn't then come back to society and ask to be made whole again. Mm. Uh, that is not society's responsibility that you have made bad choices. That leads to a different problem which is to what extent are human beings able to make equally good choices? And here, 
things get more complicated mm. because we all enter this world with different predispositions. Uh, the moment of conception um, settles things like, are you going to be, uh, settle things or settle things may be a too, too strong word, but they, but they do predispose for things like, are you going to be very smart on a genius level? Are you going to be average or are you going to be not smart? Sure. They uh, um, genes predetermined whether you are going to be very good looking or whether you are going to be ugly. Mm -hmm. Genes predetermined whether you are going to be a great sportsman or whether you are going to develop some sort of a horrific muscle destroying disease at the age of 16 or 17 and going to die a painful death. And then you're born. And then comes another lottery, which is to say, what kind of family you are mm. going to born into? Sure. Are your parents going to emphasize intellectual and uh, physical um, uh, flourishing? Or are they going to neglect the child? And the society really cannot help with any of those things because we cannot take babies away from their parents uh, and raise them by the state, uh, partly because it would be inhumane, but also because the state doesn't necessarily know any better. Mm. Um, so so um, there's a lot that every human being has to deal with um, and a lot that nature predetermines for that person even before any kind of social um, forces either help or hinder individual flourishing, mm. which is why Liberals uh, of the classical type, such as myself, um, emphasize that the best a society can do is to create an environment where is equality of opportunity, which is to say, break down barriers to people's flourishing. But don't assume that everybody is going to flourish or that everybody can flourish because that is not guaranteed. I hope I've made myself clear, although yeah, it was yeah. a very long answer. No, well, I mean, as you say, and I, and I appreciate you um, highlighting the complexity of that too. Um, so would, would it be possible then to, you know, taking the next step on that one then when we recognize that um, not everybody will perhaps, um, you know, excel based on, you know, a variety of factors there, uh, you know, traditionally that, that's been presented as, you know, that's the need for, you know, state healthcare or state, you know, various state services and things like that. So what in your view then is um, perhaps the, uh, the approach that would lead to the greatest degree of human flourishing? Well, um, whether healthcare, um, whether education um, uh, and, and many other things, um, uh, social support need to be provided by the state or not is an open question. Mm -hmm. It is perfectly possible that all of these services could be provided by non-state actors. Uh, let me give you one example. By the time that the British Parliament um, passed first law related to education, which was in 1871, 81% mm -hmm. of British people could already read and write. 
Oh, it had nothing to do. It had nothing to do with the state intervening in education. Education happened through churches. It happened through uh, local um, community support groups. Um, lords of the manor usually educated children of their peasants through um, through schools which they established and financed. So there is a lot of scope for non-state delivery of what might be called social services. Mm -hmm. um, the, the fact that the state has, over the last 100 years, intervened heavily in the provision of social care meant that private provision of social care was, as the economists put it, crowded out. Um, but that, but but I'm agnostic on who should provide help to our fellow citizens. I do agree that providing help to our fellow citizens is a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, look, you've, you've been very generous with your time, and I do want to be respectful of that. So um, if I could ask one, one main question then uh, as, as we move toward closing with our time. Um, when we consider again this idea of the progress that has been made, uh, around the world. And, and again, I would encourage everybody who is listening to check out humanprogress.org. You will be nothing less than inspired by what has been happening. But what would you say then, uh, Marian, in terms of our continuing proce uh, progress along these lines, what are um, some of the guiding lights that perhaps we need to be following to ensure we're continuing along this line of human progress? That's very important. In my opinion, human progress depends on human freedom. Um, Adam Smith in 1776 uh, uh, recognized the need for specialization of labor, uh, which means that uh, you need to have people interacting uh, without barriers in order to in order to maximize production, in order to um, in order to increase productivity. And the only way you can do that, you know, the only way that you can maximize specialization of labor is that you have to have a world without barriers to trade of goods and services. And here, let me commend to New Zealand and Australia, you guys have been absolutely terrific in uh, as leading lights of the free trade movement. Um, I hope that we can add um, United Kingdom um, and uh, I hope that the United States doesn't go too crazy when it comes to uh, to <laughs> what we are currently doing. But, right. but yes, human human freedom in terms of free trade in goods and services is very important. Now, there is another aspect of human freedom which cannot be overlooked, and that is human freedom to think new ideas, express and publish those new ideas, and exchange those new ideas. And um, um, people like Julian Simon, an economist from the University of Maryland, people like Matt Ridley have pointed out to the importance of having a vibrant intellectual environment um, where, uh, where, where because, because with every hungry mouth and with every pair of hands, there also comes a mind and uh, people come up with uh, solutions to problems. So we want them to be able to do so freely. So just as when it comes to trade in goods and services, we should be 
very, very skeptical about protectionists. The same goes for the intellectual environments. And we have to be very careful that we do not have our freedom of speech limited by speech codes or threats, um, but that we are uh, basically allowed to exchange ideas and goods freely. And I think that if we can do that, then uh, the, the future of humanity will be very, very prosperous indeed. Marion, this is the kind of thing I'm sure I could talk to you about all morning, but um, I, I thank you again for making the time to talk to me about this. So, um, look, I, I look forward to having you in New Zealand and Australia then in uh, about a year or so from now. Um, but again, just want to thank you for your time. And again, for everybody listening, uh, humanprogress.org um, is the website that you can go to and you will see the difference of uh, the principles that we've talked about today in action, how uh, this uh, freedom to, uh, to trade and also this freedom of ideas has led to incredible progress around the world. Um, but again, Marion, thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. And with that, he was gone. Thought I'd jump in again and record a little bit more just after the fact to round out this conversation that I had with Marion. Didn't quite feel right to go just to the end music. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that was something that challenged some assumptions that you had or beliefs that you'd had about the state of the world today and what really makes a difference. This has been something personally that I found challenging but very enjoyable to get a clearer sense of what has been proven to improve quality of life around the world. And that is what this website is all about. It cites statistics from independent sources that you can look at to see the progress that's being made. If I was to round out this conversation, I would say too, for those of you who, I don't know, may be suspicious about what we talked about or uh, wondering why more of the, the negative things around the world weren't addressed. Hans Rosling writes an amazing book uh, or has written an amazing book called Factfulness. And he makes a point in there that I think is particularly salient. He says that what we need to do is have a sophisticated view of the world where we're able to see things as bad, but getting better. And that's really the essence of this for me, that yes, there are still major challenges that we have around the world, but people have been proven to be resilient, to rise to those challenges. And we need to be open to observe what has been the most effective, free of our own ideologies and battles and that sort of thing, be able to look deli deliberately at the facts and to have an objective conversation about it. So hopefully this is the beginning of that for you. As always, I am uh, open to getting your feedback on this conversation too, and perhaps what I might talk about with Marion in future. You can send that through to me at theandrewcurtisshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.